Welcome to the Redefining Ethics podcast hosted by Reflecting on Justice. Come join us as we deep dive and learn from our fellow therapists about what it means to live, practice, and redefine our ethics towards collective liberation. Welcome, everybody. It's been a while since we've put out another episode, but I'm so excited today to introduce everyone to Ravin. Hi, Ravin. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm so excited to chat with you. I always like to start with just talking a little bit about how we're connected and how we know each other. Mm-hmm. And so I was just telling Linda before our episode that Ravin and I actually have many connections um, connecting mm-hmm. us. That all started with when I started teaching at Adler and everybody was saying such great things about Ravin and the guest speaking that she does in the class and just really, really, really wanting me to connect with her. And she is absolutely wonderful. I'm so excited she's here today. So hi, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so who am I? I am a settler on the stolen land of the Coast Salish peoples. I live in Vancouver. I am a registered clinical counselor. I have a couple of different gigs. So I work in, I have my own private practice. And then I also work in outpatient eating disorder treatment. And yeah, and then I'm a guest speaker, a, a public speaker, a podcaster as well. So those are kind of some of my roles. Podcast is therapy after hours, right? Yes, therapy yes. after yeah. hours. Thanks for the plug. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> we'll plug throughout. Um, what do you think is most important for our listeners to know about you? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I guess that I'm awesome. No, that's yes, just you are awesome. <laughs> no, just, yes, you are. What is most important? I guess a few of my identities. So I'm a South Asian woman. I'm a first generation child of immigrant parents from India. That's a really big part of my identity and also the part of the work that I do. Like in my private practice, I would say the largest demographic that I serve is like adult South Asian women who are first generation Canadians and kind of living between those two cultures. And I guess the other thing is that I am extremely passionate about therapeutic work. It is Mm. the center of my life, which some might call unhealthy when it comes to job balance, but I think it's different when you work a job like we do, where it takes Mm -hmm. so much of who you are. And yeah, I I practice from a social justice, anti-oppression lens and I am an auntie, which is really important to me. I've got yeah. a few little people in my mm. life. Yeah, that's kind of what I can think of off the bat. That's awesome. So you, you kind of mentioned this a little bit, but is there anybody in particular or any other people in particular that kind of hold you up in this work, especially because this work takes so much of us? Yeah, I think so many. I, I think I'm very fortunate to have a beautiful support network of lots of other therapists who work from the same kind of lens that I do. So just having friends in the field who view the work the same way to kind of go to and lean on. Mm -hmm. I have a very large family. I would say the little people in my life hold me up quite a bit in this work because it's kind of like, you know, how can I do better or do different in a world that maybe didn't treat us so well throughout our lives and wanting better for them. I think the South Asian community as a whole really holds me up. Like I think about why I got into this work and, you know, having family members who struggled with mental health and it not really being something that one was acknowledged within our community, but also wasn't treated from a very inclusive lens in the field. And so that's something that I'm like really passionate about is how do we just make the care more accessible? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a few of it. I could probably go on for a while. I think, like you said, it's so important to 
to build those communities of the people that hold us up because this work while so meaningful and can be so nourishing it can also be discouraging and depleting mm -hmm. when we are doing this work within oppressive systems oh, and yeah. feeling yeah. kind of like we, I think my biggest kind of sign that I need to lean on those things is when I start to go to a place of like helplessness mm -hmm. right like there's nothing that I can do that all the systems are bad. There's all this crisis in the world. And then I'm like, okay, check yourself. Let's go find some hope and let's find some, some solidarity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great point. Like the work in itself is already difficult to, to give so much of ourselves as part yeah. of our work is already so difficult, but adding yeah. to that, that lens that mm -hmm. we see when we're practicing from anti-oppressive practices and, and that kind of framework, mm -hmm. it's, there's a whole other level of helplessness that, that comes into that. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really hard work to do, especially in isolation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I also think about how the anti-oppressive like therapy quote-unquote approach and all of these like ideas are still not considered clinical practices right and it, it's, it's such a fine line there like do we want it as a thing that we are taught in I guess our therapy training or do we need to just build on these relations within ourselves and these communities that hold us up right yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I think about like why it's not in clinical practice. And I think it's like, mm -hmm. as we know, like evidence-based literature is so rooted in things that can be measured. And then it's like, well, how do you measure yeah. oppression and anti-oppression? Like, so the things that I feel like the things that are the most meaningful sometimes are the things that can't be measured. And so then mm -hmm. they don't get legitimized by mm -hmm. science. And also I wonder if anti-oppression can even be taught. Yeah. Right. Like, I think exactly. it can be taught to a degree, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I don't know if it can like, you know, I worry about yeah. that because I'm like, you know, we, I, I know, I, I don't know if either of you went to Adler, but I, I did. And, you know, there's, that's a program that's like immersed in social justice and it's still not enough. Right. And it's, so, and I'm like, so what are other universities going to do? Like throw in one course for the sake of like performative right. <laughs> anti-oppression work and say, yeah, we learned about anti-oppression. It's like a lifelong journey, I feel. Yeah. 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 It's it's much more of an embodiment and a discovery, like a co-creating, mm -hmm. which is so so much of what reflecting on justice is, right? Like mm -hmm. that co-creating piece of being in community and learning within community than it is even academic. Like I I, I don't think mm -hmm. academia can do this work. Yeah. Because yeah. of just the structure of academia. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not necessarily a passing down of the knowledge. Like even for folks who don't know, I teach the anti-oppression course at Adler. One wow. of them, mm -hmm. and we we do have several. I think so. I I teach the first one that people get connected to, and a lot of it is just sharing what is happening in society yeah. now. Right. Yes. The the transformative piece, as much as we put in there, I think is not enough. We only get one term to do that. <laughs> uh, whereas, mm. you know, this is really a lifelong thing and you have to see and you have to see things that you sometimes don't want to see. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you support people into getting to that point for yeah. something bigger than themselves? Right. That's mm. not anything within academia. Academia is pushing you towards something that's already predefined as the thing you're supposed to do. Yeah. It's not creative yeah. at all. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you say that academia 
like anti-oppression work can't be done in academia. Academia itself is an oppressive system, right? Like (laughs) the educational institutions and the accessibility of that, where I think about like some of the most powerful anti-oppression and social justice work is done by folks and led by folks who don't have access Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. the privilege of education and academia. Yeah. Academia kind of just takes away all the magic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It does. There's so much magic here. Yeah. It makes you like, it fills your cup. It fills your heart. It just feels so warm whenever you find folks that are like you. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something so connecting about it because I think for me, at least like anti-oppression social justice work is so rooted in lived experience mm-hmm. and, and rooted in like the stories of not only myself, but the stories of like the generations of my family that came before me, the stories of all folks who hold any form of marginalized identity. Yeah. And I think when yeah. you come together in a room with folks that have that unfortunate shared experience of experiencing uh-huh. oppression it does create magic. It creates like this fire and this, like this connectedness that doesn't exist in other mm. spaces. Yeah, and it's totally. so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That reminds me of a quote I saw on Instagram. I can't remember whose quote it is, but I don't know you personally, but I do know you ancestrally. Mm. And oh. I think that's such a great summation oh. of kind of what it feels like yes. when we're in spaces where we just get it, you know? Mm. So you kind of touched on this a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit more about your story to radicalization and how, how you came to this work? Yeah, I mean, mine was a nonlinear journey, as most are. I I kind of always... Actually, that's a lie. Not always knew that I wanted to end up in this field. I knew that I wanted to support people in some way. I didn't know what that was going to look like. I was always fascinated by psychology and how the brain worked. I actually thought that I was going to be a criminal profiler for a long time (laughs) because I found like psychopathology so fascinating. And then kind of later in my adolescent years, like grade 11, 12, I really started struggling with some significant mental health concerns. And I had some pretty badass professionals who supported Mm -hmm. me through it. Shout out to my high school counselor who probably wouldn't be listening to this, but we'll send it to him or something. Um, And so kind of seeing that I was like, wow, like I want to be this person for other people. Watching family members, very close family members struggle with significant mental health issues and not get the care that they needed, whether it was due to cultural barriers or language barriers or any generation barriers, right? That really kind of propelled me into wanting to do this work. And then I went for my undergrad, really thought I was going to get into grad school didn't get into grad school my first time around, which can be really devastating when you do build an identity around being a student and being an academia. So then I was like, this is the end of the world. I can't do this work. I give up. Mm -hmm. And instead I decided to pursue a certificate in counseling. And so that led me to a space, a workplace that will remain nameless that really broke me as a practitioner in so many ways. Looking back on it now, I can really see the systems that were in play. I I didn't have as much of a developed social justice lens at the time, but the, you know, the capitalist system that was in place in terms of being an organization that provided support, but also needed to make money, it being mostly or primarily run by white people and me being the only person of color and the youngest person on the team. I, 
I can now label like kind of what happened as, you know, I was gaslit. I was kind of treated as if I was anytime I challenged something that was happening in that space, it was because I wasn't capable of doing this work. It wasn't because of the system that I was in. Mm-hmm. And then I was fortunate enough though, that they did have a clinical supervisor. And Abby, I feel like you may have mentioned her on a podcast, so she might be another connection that we have, but Vicky. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think it, I'm, I think we're talking about the same Vicky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. She's yeah. my supervisor. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Vicky was a clinical supervisor in this space that I was working in. And I got to a place where I just broke like this threw me deep into like questioning my identity, questioning whether I was in the right field. It threw me into the depths of my eating disorder at the time. And I went to Vicky and just bawled my eyes out and was like, I didn't get into UBC which I'm so grateful for now, but like I didn't get in and this place, this place is teaching me that like, I'm not capable of doing this kind of work. I'm not made for this. Like I'm too sensitive or I'm too, you know, what have you. And, and thank my lucky stars for Vicky. Cause she was like, we need you in this work. And I actually didn't even know what Adler was. And I think Vicky was teaching there at the time. So she was like, you're going to apply to Adler. And I'm going to recommend you. And that was kind of the next domino of me going to Adler, pursuing my master's there, working within systems the whole time. So I did end up leaving that not so, not so great place, but I continued to work in bachelor's levels counseling positions because that's one of the the benefits of us not being regulated here in BC. Um, And, you know, there's pros and cons to that. So I was able to continue to work in like nonprofit settings and really just like hone in on like the kind of therapist that I wanted to be the way that I wanted to show up in this work and, and really learning from my mistakes of in that initial position, thinking about like what burnt me out, right? Like what really got me to that place of breaking. And I think it was actually Vicky in a workshop who said like, it's not the the clients and the work that burn us out. It's doing work that's unethical. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I was, I was green at the time. I didn't realize what was happening. And now looking back, I was like, it just brushed up against my ethics so much. It was such a shame and fear-based environment of change, which is not something that aligns with who I am. And so going through that and then moving through other spaces really let me figure out like, how do I want to show up in this work? And what does it mean to me to be a therapist? Not what it means to be like the old white dudes who pioneered psychology, right? And that was, I think- when you talk about like the story of radicalization for me, radicalization was self-acceptance, like just getting to the place of like, this is who I am. I'm going to authentically show up as I am. And if someone calls me unprofessional, if someone doesn't like the way that I work, if someone, I think my biggest like kind of imposter syndrome thing was like, I'm going to be called dumb because like, Mm -hmm. I don't speak eloquently and I don't quote the literature and I don't speak in that way. And I was like, if, if people are going to do that, then they're just not my people, right? Like they're not the people that I want in my life. They're not the people that I want to work with. And now I think I'm finally at a place where I'm like, okay, I can stand really firm. And I, I work within, you know, the healthcare system and going through all of that and getting to this place is like, now I use my voice Mm -hmm. and I say, when this doesn't align with me and I acknowledge that that comes from like a level of privilege of, you know, having my private practice to fall back on of if I don't like something that's going on in the systemic work, I do have the privilege to be able to walk away uh, or to speak up. So 
Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry for the long-winded answer, but that's how I got here. <laughs> no, that's oh. wonderful. I th there's so many pieces in there that I connected with. And, you know, just speaking to the last piece you brought up about, like, the privilege of being able to walk away. Mm -hmm. um, I really get that. But at the same time, when you're in those systems, even if you have the privilege to walk away, it can be very devastating mm, to be yeah. part of it, right? And it can yeah. be really difficult to speak up, mm -hmm. to go against something so big. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of factors associated with that. And so I think, you know, all the work that you did to get yourself to a point of self-acceptance of mm -hmm. like, hey, this is just who I am. Mm -hmm. Take it or yeah. leave it. And I, I also know me and I know yeah. what I stand for. And that's mm -hmm. I don't want to use like the hill that you want to die on. That's such a yeah. terrible <laughs> metaphor. But like, you know, you know, this is where I stand and this is what's important to me. Yeah, it's kind of like I'm not going to dull my light to make you more comfortable. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. If it makes you uncomfortable that I bring up conversations about race and class and access to services, or, you know, if I call you out on your, your microaggressions and that makes you uncomfortable, mm -hmm. that's your shit. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe you should be a little bit uncomfortable here. Like this yeah. is the type yeah. of discomfort we need for us to move towards a society that we're all looking towards. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I will add to that is I always also try to do it with compassion. I think that's one of my, like, when I think one of the questions were like, what are the, well, like, what are your guiding ethics? I think I hold compassion at the core, which mm -hmm. is my greatest strength. And also sometimes my biggest detriment, especially my best friend, he'll always joke. He'll be like, you're, he's like, there's something wrong with you. Like you can find compassion for just about anybody. And, and, it, and it's, you know, I think that that's the way that change happens. I don't think that change happens without compassion. I think I can, yeah. I don't have to agree with somebody for being racist, but I can have compassion for the part of them that learned that and thought that that was okay. Yeah. Right? And we need compassion in anti-oppressive work anyways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's like a mandatory thing too. <laughs> totally. And I, and I, when I talk about that, cause sometimes, you know, I swung the pendulum early on in my career, I went to like angry at everybody, yeah. which I think anger is so pivotal in anti-oppression work, right? Like helping clients access their anger towards injustice is like one of my favorite things to do. I think it's so fun, but you know, I swung to that angry place of I'm going to get mad at everybody and shame everybody into seeing the world the way that I see it. And it wasn't effective. Right. Like no, I just pushed people away. Yeah. And so kind of coming back into that middle ground. And one of the things that grounds me is I think about if we're operating from a shame based method of change when it comes to anti-oppression work, we're no different than the oppressor. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that's how oppression works is they make a, they divide us. They become divisive. They shame us. You know, the shame fuels all like the capitalism and the racism and the sexism mm -hmm. and all of those things. And so then if we become divisive and shame based in the anti-oppression work, then we're just doing exactly what they want us to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We're playing the same game. And yeah. I think that's, it's really important to point out that we can hold all of these things at once. Mm -hmm. Right. Vicky always says yeah. we can walk and chew gum as activists. Yeah. yeah. And it's like we can hold the anger and the rage. And there's like a lot of really good uses for the anger and rage without having it turn into shame. Right. And we can hold compassion and we can hold discomfort all at the same time mm -hmm. uh, and hope we can have it all. We can have yeah. it all, right? Like mm -hmm. what is this narrative that it's one or the other, right? That's the mm -hmm. binary structures of oppression itself. And so yeah. so many layers of of stepping out of what we're we're taught and indoctrinated with. And I I really think I don't know if this is just me 
being like siloed into a certain perspective or, or the people that I'm surrounded with. But I really think the the movement towards collective liberation is one of more around joy and compassion and connectiveness mm -hmm. now than it was maybe several decades ago where yeah. you know, it was a different tactics, right? For And for yeah. good reason, that's what yeah. was needed then. And I think yeah. we're really making a shift now, which I yeah. think is so exciting. So exciting. Oh. I actually, it's funny that you brought up the joy piece. Cause I think one of my notes that I made around that, when you said like the story of radicalization, like part of self-acceptance was, I think that humor and joy are so powerful in therapeutic spaces and they're oh, not yeah. utilized enough. Right. It becomes yeah. this really like serious, yeah. we've got to, and then there's like this pathology of, Oh, you deflect with humor. And I'm like, no, I use humor to bring light to some of the darkest stuff. Mm. And I think that's like that joy and that humor and that fun is mm. so, so important in this work in these spaces. Cause otherwise we, yeah, we'll just go to that helpless, hopeless place. And that's not a fun place to be stuck. Yeah. And, and what's the point, right? Like, yeah. why, why are we doing that? You know, if there's, mm -hmm. if there's spaces for humor and connectiveness, why aren't we doing it? Because of somebody saying that this is deflection, that you're not going into your pain enough, mm -hmm. who gets to, to decide at what pace and to what level do you go into yeah. your pain? And that's called healing. Right. Yeah. yeah. I really relate to that too. I make a lot of jokes in yeah. my classes, in my in my therapy <laughs> sessions. And, you know, I've also had the experience of, oh, that's not professional. Mm -hmm. Like, do you do you realize how you're coming across? And mm -hmm. I have never had a client be like, You made a joke. I don't trust you now. Like I don't yeah. want to connect with never. You. It's always yeah. been the opposite. It's what makes yeah. me more useful, right? Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. so even questioning these indoctrinations that we get from academia, right? Tying that back to what we're learning and what we're taught. Yeah. 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 I find, I love that you say like, this is what makes me so useful. Cause I've literally, sometimes when I use that humor piece, I've literally watched clients physically disarm, Yes. right? Oh, like just, yes. just soften and, yeah. and relax. And, and I think particularly I've been trying to bring this more into my work with eating disorders. Cause I mean, I can do what I want in my private practice. That's mine. Right. But, you know, working within the healthcare system and bringing that in, it's like these folks are so entrenched in treatment and treatment becomes so much about, you have to feel your feelings all the time. You have to really dig into the function of the eating disorder and you have to, you know, look at the needs that it's meeting. And all of that is so important. I really believe in that. And it doesn't have to be the only thing about you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like my thing is like, let's bring some joy and some humor back into your life so that you're not just the eating disorder. Like there's so mm -hmm. much more to you. And I've actually recently started doing, I do exposures with clients often and exposures are often done in this really like methodical, yeah. like serious way. Once the trust and the safety is there, I'm like, Hey, let's do it in a more like casual way. Like I'm going to yeah. sit and like have my meal and like you do yours. And I'm right here if you need me, like, I'm not gonna, and like, let's joke and like mess around as we do this and like shoot the shit, just like any other like friends would sit at a meal together. Yeah. Let's just make mm -hmm. this normal instead of like, you're a problem. And I'm going to sit across the table from you and mm -hmm. watch you do it because I'm the professional. Yeah. Like, that's, oh. It's just, that's the piece around redefining ethics, right? Like mm -hmm. that even makes me think of like what our professional ethics tell mm -hmm. us around what yeah. is blurred boundaries and what is like, yeah. you know, enmeshment or, or whatnot. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't even have a fully formed thought. It's just this, this knowing that it's like, okay, but 
isn't that perpetuating the medical gaze? And how do we do medical yeah. model when our profession is so much about connection? Mm -hmm. That makes no sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, yes, totally. And yet that's the one thing that's drilled in our heads multiple yeah. times. We are literally taught to be afraid of our clients and yeah, literally taught to protect ourselves against them. And yeah, yeah. don't take your work home with you. Yeah, like that's the that. worst thing that you could do. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll just turn my compassion off at five o'clock. Like, cool. Yeah, what the heck? <laughs> you know? yeah mm -hmm. it makes absolutely no sense. And isn't taking it home with you, quote unquote, what qualifies you for this work? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I wrote something about that a while back because I had, I when I first got into this work, I had a lot of people who, you know, don't, aren't in this world say to me like, oh, you have unhealthy boundaries, like you're bringing work home with you, you know, you work too much and all of these things. And I was like, don't know if I bring work home with me as much as like, if you think about, I think I read it in a book where it was like a surgeon has a scalpel, like a mechanic has their tools and like the therapist has the self, like uh -huh. we are the tool that, and it's like, I don't get to turn myself off at yeah. the end of the day and I'll often say to people because they'll be like oh you're talking in your like therapist voice I'm like I don't have one I just have my voice and I was like and I didn't become a therapist and then start being this way I became a therapist because I am this way mm -hmm. like this doesn't feel like work to me so yeah. with your like rigid boundaries and that kind of stuff is just that was part of the self-acceptance of like that's just not who mm -hmm. I am and if you think that's unhealthy like cool you don't get to decide what's unhealthy for me. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. reminds me of like how some of my friends, like when they ask about what, what I do for therapy, they're like, how do you like stand listening to people's problems all day? And I'm like, that's not what we actually yeah. do. There's so many myths around just therapy in general, right? Like yeah. mental health help, what that looks like. And this work is literally energizing me. It really fuels me, yeah. especially the anti-oppressive like movement of it all. It moves me and mm -hmm. it's healing. Yeah. When I talk to clients or folks who come see me, yeah. it's wild. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you said that. I think that's so important to highlight because I think it's just, I think for me, like well-being and being nourished is about having a sense of meaning and purpose, yeah. right? And if we found that in our work and in the anti-oppressive spaces, there's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't mean every therapist has to find their sense of meaning and purpose in their work, mm -hmm. but that's where we found it. And, and, or it sounds like I'm putting words in your mouth, but, <laughs> you <got> it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. but I think that's, you know, that's so important. And I think about like, this profession has got me through some of the darkest times. Mm -hmm. And there were some things that if I wasn't able to sit in a room with the folks that I, that I work with and witness their resilience on a day-to-day -day basis, like, I don't know if I would have gotten through my own stuff. And I heard a thing one time where it's like, you get the clients that you need, right. When you need them. And I think that that holds so yes. true. And my clients will always be like, thank you so much. I'm like, I think you give me more than I give you. Like, I don't really do a whole lot when it comes down to it. Yeah. Have you ever noticed both of you where like you have clients throughout the day and some of the stuff they're talking about actually translates to your next session yeah. or even your life. Totally. And yeah. it tends like, to be what? like a theme. Yeah. yeah. Why is there such a similar theme? Like each week there's a new one. 
but it's like almost telepathic or communicating through these senses. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I do notice that a lot. I'm like, Oh, I've talked about X concept in all of my sessions today. How does that keep coming up? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something so fundamentally connective about how people move in the world and the people who find us tend to move similarly to us. I think that's Mm -hmm. a lot of our work. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's always so liberating Mm -hmm. to have those experiences and this is a little, this isn't about reflecting on justice, but like at Ventures, we're trying to create more spaces for clients to create community within themselves. Mm-hmm. And it kind of sparked from this noticing too of, you know, it'd be so great if we can facilitate community in a way that's mm-hmm. not like group counseling where you're coming to counseling more processing yeah. Um, yeah. because you would enrich each other's lives so much and you're connected, but you don't know that you're connected because I'm not mm-hmm. allowed to tell you. Yeah, like, you know, finding ways of of navigating that again, that piece around redefining ethics of how do I support people in building more connections? And what can that look like? Mm -hmm. We stepped outside of what is taught from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to make it really clear that it's not that we're blurring boundaries to a point where, where it's going to be harmful for folks, yeah. right? It, like yeah. there's so much consent associated all, with the way time. that we negotiate boundaries. And I think that's what's lost with boundary mm-hmm. education is like, mm-hmm. I set a boundary and you must respect it. Well, no. Yeah. <laughs> I set a boundary and then we negotiate and then we exactly. all come to something where we can all exist together, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. really boundary setting. And I think that's kind of lost in translation a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny because you started that piece by saying this isn't to do with reflecting on justice, but I think the idea of connectivity and creating community and creating meaningful connections is very much. Mm-hmm. in line with that. And I, and I struggle with that too, where it's like, I'm fortunate that my, the eating disorders program is a group-based program. So we do get this opportunity for them. And it was harder when it was online. Cause it's like, there's not that crosstalk and that like, you know, they're all sitting on zoom and it's more like a classroom setting, but we've recently gone back to in-person sessions. And it's so cool. Cause a lot of the eating disorder is about isolation. And so like to have these folks sharing their experience of like, I don't actually really have friends to hang out mm. with. And it's like, now maybe they can talk in the waiting room. Mm. and like build those connections or I've also had instances like my previous job was working in a parenting support program Mm. and sometimes when parents have children with specific behavioral needs or challenges they feel like I'm the only one that struggles with this Mm. and it was so powerful to be able to bring them together and like in that way with consent, right? Just being like, you're not obligated to this, but I have some people that I think you might find it useful to connect mm-hmm. to. I'll have to check for, with them for consent. And yeah. And the amount of times that clients have come back and they're like, thank you so much for like, because mm-hmm. I think it fosters that, well, Kristen Neff, right? Common humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When yeah. we get connected to people and see that we all share similar battles. Yeah. yeah our capacity for compassion grows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that brought up for me a practice I used to do when I was doing in-person sessions and I don't do in-person sessions anymore. And I, I sometimes I get these flashes of, oh, I really do miss it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the yeah. practices is I used to have a, a whiteboard in my office where clients would just leave notes for each other. And they wouldn't know who they're leaving notes for, but they'll come back and they'll get a note. And it's kind of like a letter chain, so to speak. And folks would come in and leave a note for what what they've learned and and then take a picture of it and take it home with them. And like that generativeness that's Mm -hmm. inherent, that can be part of our practice, but isn't, you know, it's just a lost opportunity that costs too much. 
yeah. it feels like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I hear oh. you. And especially with the pandemic, everyone's been feeling so isolated. And like, I honestly have worked with so many, have been working with a lot of queer people of color folks who are like, where are the other queers? And we don't mm-hmm. know each other. And yeah, how there's this lack of feeling of community and yeah. this is needed more than yeah. ever. Mm-hmm. I actually just bought a corkboard for my office and I was thinking about that the other day, Abby. Cool. Yeah. I was like, what if they left a note for each other or just like, I don't know, words of affirmation or wisdom or anything, yeah. a quote even, whatever. And yeah, it could be like a chain of letters. Oh, I love that. That's so awesome. We used to do like a sisterhood of the traveling pants kind of thing, but workers, <laughs> and it was yeah. just, it, it became a, a full book because we just staple it. It was very ad hoc, but um, <laughs> it was lovely. I, I don't know where it is now because it just gets passed along. Right. But yeah, wow. I'm so excited for that. That sounds like such a great practice. That's so fun. Oh. Which kind of leads me to my next question for you, Raven, is we kind of touched upon this, but what kind of practices have been impactful for you when you've been redefining your ethics? So we touched upon humor and compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Are there anything else that, that come to mind for you? Hmm. Like really just being authentic in a space. And I I think flexibility was a big one, right? Because going into grad school and learning those professional ethics, and I'm doing air quotes for those of you listening audibly, but, you know, I was like, they're so rigid, right? And they scare the crap out of you. Like you can never blur these and you can never, you know, have this, have like a blurred line with a client. And again, like Abby preface, like not in a harmful way, right? It's only if it's going to add benefit, but that flexibility of being able to bring together my personal and my professional and like bring in like culturally informed stuff, right? Like I work with so many people of color and then we do the, oh, well, I won't like, you know, I won't greet you if I see you out in public to, oh. and like my clients will be like, can I give you a big hug if I see you? Cause like yeah. my, my, my private practice is virtual too. And then it's like, you know, in school, it's like, don't hug your clients. And I'm like, the hugs are so therapeutic. And if I want to hug my client and it's not a harmful thing, yeah. then why not? Right. Yeah. yeah. I think with flexibility, like the gray area is something that really informs my ethics of like really breaking out of that binary of it's not black and white. Mm -hmm. It's not right and wrong. It's not professional or unprofessional, you know, it's not ethical or unethical. There's this whole middle area and I want to live there. I want, I want to live in the messy (laughs) and the sticky and the undefined. The perfectionist in me does not want to live there. You know, the very linear thinker, but I think for me, the gray area is where all the magic happens, whether that's ethically or in therapy or in our personal lives. So that's that's a huge guiding ethic. And then the final one that I had noted here is like reframing what accessibility means to me. Because mm. I think sometimes we think about accessibility in the literal senses, which is really important, like having access to services, having access to physical spaces. I also like started thinking about it in like a more holistic sense of like emotional accessibility, Mm. intellectual accessibility, right? Like where are people at? So like you were saying earlier for emotional accessibility, like I don't get to decide how deep into somebody's pain they want to go, right? I'm going to go, I'm going to let them guide me to where is accessible for them. And that's been quite transformative because I think, again, we get trained to kind of you know, we get top models, certain models that are 
you know, very linear and say like, this is what you go in and this is how you treatment plan. And then this is how you, and I just, I felt so bound by that. And I felt so Mm -hmm. stuck and I felt like I was getting so consumed and trying to offer the client a solution that I wasn't being mindful of what was accessible to them and just pulling that back and saying, you know, where are you at? Right. And, and where do you want to go? Yeah. You know, what comes to mind, like, how they always teach us about case conceptualizations Mm -hmm. I never understood because people change like even your next session they will talk about different things and you don't have to go by an agenda and never like I never understood that concept and I, I think though, like to, to look at both, to live in the gray area, Yes, I feel that way. And I think for some of us who, like we were talking about, like really embody the work and this is so core and pivotal to like who we are and how we function, that makes sense, right? Like I don't understand the case conceptualization. I just want to see you as a person and walk with you wherever you go. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people that enter this field aren't that at the core there are a lot of people that enter it for the accolades or for you know the academia aspect and really go into it from that I had an undergrad prof who said like you know there's two types of people who become counselors and and one is the wounded healer um, which I very much identify with right like Mm -hmm. I've walked it and now I want to walk alongside you and I'm continuing Mm -hmm. to walk it and she said and the other is like the medical model like I'm better and I know better so I'm going to come in and fix you the savior yeah yeah Yeah. and so I think about you know it's I that's when I think about it's helpful to have frameworks and things like case conceptualization because I think that there are folks doing this Mm. work that would be harmful if they didn't have it fair And I think if we, if it's, if it binds us and Mm. we can do meaningful work without it, that's our choice too. Yeah. It's person-centered, all of this. All of it. I love it when people say person-centered because I'm yeah. when, when somebody is like, I'm a person-centered therapist, I'm like, well, what yeah. else would you be? Yeah. Like, why is that even a like, like <laughs> thing that we say and about that or like trauma informed? I'm like, yeah. if you're a therapist and you have to like disclaim those things, right. I'm like, hmm, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about some of the lingo that come up a lot in our education, like meeting a client where we're at. And then mm. the mm. irony of then having conceptualizations and processes and protocols that we're following, regardless of where the client is at. And so, yeah. like, so many kind of contradictions almost as to how we're being taught and having to as students as practitioners regardless of whichever type of practitioner you are or if you're in the gray area of that as well having to navigate those spaces and having Mm -hmm. to unlearn all of these things and so i'm just wondering if you've experienced that unlearning that actually created more learning so the most nourishing mistakes that you've made when you've had to unlearn what's been indoctrinated in us yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind is I I hold myself accountable for I think the biggest mistake that I m- made early on in my career was not using my voice in those settings when I saw harm yeah. being yeah. done like and I think that came from a lack of like self-trust and that came from a lack of that came from like almost gaslighting myself of like you're not smart enough, you're too young, you don't know. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. people have been doing it longer. 
And so I think that really taught me that I have the right to take up space Mm -hmm. and I continue to learn that. Like, it's not like I got there and now I just take up all the space. Like sometimes I sit in a room full of professionals and I battle with myself for a long time and, and leave thinking like, fuck, I wish I said something. Sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear and I might've already sweared. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, there was that piece of really allowing myself to take up space. And I think that is an ongoing process of unlearning, especially as a BIPOC woman, there's a lot of unlearning of, I'm not allowed to take up space, right? That's what I'm unlearning. Yeah. So I think that was a really big piece. And I think something that I'm still kind of balancing out is how we were taught that like self-disclosure is like the ultimate cross of boundaries, (laughs) right? Like I'm, Uh. I really am learning to value and utilize my lived experience in ways that are that are beneficial in the work and I'm I'm still figuring out that balance of you know how much to share and how much is too much and and I think again there's that gray area right like with certain clients even one self-disclosure is going to be too much and with other Mm -hmm. ones you know we might talk about it a bit more and I I can pinpoint the exact moment where I unlearned that self-disclosure is unsafe. And because mm. I always kind of questioned myself of, you know, do I bring this in? And I, I had a, a client, a young South Asian woman who was struggling with depression and anxiety. And I just named, I said, you know, I'm a person that struggles with mood and anxiety. And I watched her just soften. And she said, I've never heard a therapist say that before. Mm. And she was like, thank you so much. And so like, that's some of the work that I'm doing around that. Cause I think the mistakes was I was too rigid in the beginning and I tried to do everything by the book and it really ripped me and, and the people that I worked with off of some meaningful healing. Yeah. That connectiveness, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. But so many mistakes and we're going to continue to make, I'm going to continue to make them and we're going to continue to learn, like learn from them. I think that's actually probably one of the, the learnings is making mistakes is okay. Yeah. I don't have to, I don't have to know it all, all the time. Mm-hmm. It's okay for me to say to someone that I'm working with, like, actually, I, I'm, I don't know much about that. And I'm going to have to check and get back to you. Whereas before it was like, the mistake was me feeling like I had to be like, I have all the answers. Yeah. I know it all. I can't say, I don't know, because they're going to think I'm dumb and I'm going to be not a credible professional. Mm-hmm. And now I'm just like, fuck you know what? I don't actually know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I get that one a lot too. I need, I need to know, I need to have the answers or else Mm -hmm. they're going to feel hopeless if I don't have the answer. I'm supposed to have the answer. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But when, when we get to the space of, I don't know, let's figure Mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. Like that becomes that generativeness, right? Almost even as you're sharing that piece around knowing when self-disclosure was actually really impactful, Mm -hmm. that emotional resonance I got even hearing that Mm -hmm. and having to sit in that for a moment, that's what happens when we get into these these spaces where we resist saviorism, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't need to know yeah. who says I need to know. That's not the point. That's not what we're here for. That's not our job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, just, I just thought of how it's compassion and permission that we need, mm-hmm. like con- continuous practice yeah. of giving ourselves permission and accepting who we are. Yeah. Mm. Permission's huge, right? Because how yeah. many times, and again, I'll say particularly as folks with marginalized identities, right? Where we don't give ourselves permission yeah. and 
that makes me think about like the, uh, the idea of, I have to know everything. Yes. in certain instances came from a savior place of, I have to fix this and I don't want them to become too hopeless, but it also came from a place of internalized oppression, mm. right. Where I, where I noticed the tendency coming up more often to feel like I had to have a solution to feel like yeah. I couldn't say, I don't know when I was working particularly with white men, mm-hmm. because there was a part of me that said, Oh, like, you know, or older folks, like folks that are older than mm-hmm. I, cause I was like, I, you know, there's a part of me that thinks you're not going to take me seriously because I'm younger, because I'm Brown, mm-hmm. because I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. feeling like I have to really hold this, like I know it all and I have all the skills and I can fix your problem. And now I'm just like, no, I'm just going to be human. And mm-hmm. that's enough for me. Yeah. And if they don't want it, they can find another practitioner Yeah, that will you know, show off all of their professional skills. Yeah. (laughs) That'll show up in their white lab coat with their clipboard and Mm. their, their CBT worksheets. Yes. (laughs) Lots and lots of that. (laughs) Now trying to shit on CBT. It is useful in instances, but just handing out worksheets is not useful to people. (laughs) Yeah. Really releasing that burden of credibility. Mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. often have to take on because of what we're taught and, and how, how our society frames us. So I think we've kind of touched upon this throughout, but are there any other pieces of living justice that you hold the most dear that we haven't touched upon? Mm-hmm. I literally just wrote two words when I saw this question. I wrote compassion and curiosity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like those are probably the two biggest ones. I think And then we added self-acceptance and kind of like that authenticity to the mix. Mm. And I think humility and like Mm. that. And I don't know if that's the right word, but I think about things like in this world now where social justice is gaining more traction, which is phenomenal. We've also ended up with this byproduct of like cancel culture. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. And I find that so problematic where I'm like, you know, every now it's like people are afraid to speak up on the social justice things because they're so afraid of making a mistake and, Mm -hmm. and saying the wrong thing and then getting canceled. And I'm like, we need to create space for those mistakes. We need to have compassion and hold space and talk about them. And like, that's how learning happens. Like I'm going to make mistakes. Everyone's going to make mistakes. And, and that's the part of justice work that I don't think that we talk enough about where it's become this really rigid thing of like, you better be a hundred percent anti-oppression and never say anything wrong Mm -hmm. or you're causing harm. And it's like, again, that binary, that black and white. So I guess it comes back to that gray area piece. If I can be anti-oppression and still be unlearning things and still make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, it's unrealistic for anything else because we still exist in this system. We're still the fish in the fish tank. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. My heart is also going to newer therapists out there who are still trying to practice like therapy modalities and all of that. They've ta- been taught in school while, you know, seeing clients for the first time and now learning about anti-oppressive work and how to just mix all of that into their practice and how difficult it might all be sometimes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We need room for mistakes there. Yeah. I like that you bring that up. I actually, I tutor folks for the qualifying exam, okay. which has to be grounded in one theory and a case conceptualization in one theory. <laughs> and, and when I tutor them, I say, I said, this is not indicative of how you'll practice in the yeah. real world. This is just 
actually it was my, it was Boopy actually, who said this to me, my mm-hmm. supervisor. She, when I was preparing for the qualifying exam, she was like, this is not reflective of how you can actually work with folks. This is not measuring your ability to work with folks. It's measuring your ability to take a test. Yeah. And so you just mm-hmm. have to conform for the bureaucratic bullshit of like being able to mm-hmm. take the test. But I don't ever conceptualize a client the way that I did on my MCQE. Like now I'm like, no. like I might draw pieces of it that are useful, mm-hmm. but yeah. I always say that to new therapists where I'm like, just throw it out the window. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of transitions us really well into the tips or lessons that you would like to pass on to other therapists in this work, whether that's new therapists or therapists mm-hmm. who've been in the field for a really long time when the, these kinds of conversations weren't part of mainstream, I guess we're still not mainstream, but you know what I mean? You know, one is throw all the bureaucratic stuff out of the window yeah, <laughs> and yeah. make lots of mistakes and find your people. Are there yeah. anything else that are coming up for you that you think would be important for other folks to know? Yeah, I think, I think really just like be yourself. And I think that's something that we're so afraid to do in therapy be yourself and you'll find the people that want to work with you and you don't have to be everybody's therapist. I think that's one of the biggest like fears of being ourselves is, oh, there's going to be certain populations or certain people who aren't going to like me or aren't going to want to work with me. That's inevitable. You can't be everyone's therapist. So be yourself and draw in the people that you serve best from a place of authenticity be yourself sounds so cheesy, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. And I, I did right here, like, it's okay to make mistakes. I actually find like, you know, speaking of not working for modalities, I do draw quite a bit from emotion focused family therapy. And one of the things, one of the, the principles of that is the therapeutic apology Mm -hmm. and how breaks and repairs actually strengthen Mm -hmm. relationships Mm -hmm. so much more than trying to be perfect. And so instead of trying to be perfect and never make a mistake or avoiding a mistake when you've made it, like do that therapeutic apology work, like where you can really repair and show what it's like to be human, to, to mess up and take accountability. I also wrote like safety over solutions. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. We don't need to fix anything. Mm-hmm. Cause how many new therapists or maybe even therapists who have been practicing a while, are like, I need this client to leave here feeling like I gave them something, like I Mm. did something. Right. (laughs) I still feel that pressure sometimes. Like I'm like, I'm like, oh, was I even useful? And oftentimes when I have a session where all I've done is just held space and, and validated and, you know, established rapport, I'll say at the end, like, what was that like for you? And they were just like, that was so relieving. Yeah. Like that's oftentimes all what people need. Oh, you're crying. <laughs> so good. Yeah. 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 That's the connective piece. Yeah. 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 I'm just like sitting in <laughs> in the thing <sighs> the feels of it all. Is there is there anything that you have prepared that I haven't asked that you want to share with folks? I don't think so. Well, I guess kind of in line, I get what the, what would I offer new therapists or therapists in the field? Acknowledge that it's hard to do anti-oppression work in mm. within oppressive systems, Yeah. Yes. right? Like I, I have this lens and I work for 
governmental health care, mm-hmm. right? And, oh. it, and it's something that can be, that's such a weird push and pull yeah. and it can feel really disconnecting yeah. sometimes. Like I'm actually, I'm finally feeling like there's people coming into my space, like on my team that have a similar lens. And so it's nice to be able to have these conversations in solidarity, but you know, I know what it's like to be the only person preaching inclusion and, mm-hmm. you know, and true inclusion, not like, let's just do a land acknowledgement at the beginning of a presentation, right? Like, you know, and like, know that, that that's discouraging, but I also know how meaningful it's been to clients to have somebody in a space that could feel unsafe in so many ways mm-hmm. to just, I say, you know, I dig my feet in and I white knuckle it when I, yeah. when I can't do anything else. Yeah. I think that's really important for people to hear, especially because, you know, that coming back to that piece of perfectionism, right? Like if you're anti-oppression, mm-hmm. then you have to resist, you know, all the institutions and all of the, yes mm-hmm. yes but also no because you also need to like live and also mm-hmm. change needs to happen there right so yeah it's not you're not expected to stay there all the time but how what is going to support change what is going to be the best use of you sometimes yeah. that's not the best use of you but yeah you know it could also be radical there's mm-hmm. a lot of gray and magic in that too and that's kind of that push and pull like earlier when we were talking about the privilege of being able to walk away that privilege can be emotional it can be financial and all these things but one of the challenges for me anyways from walking away like why I stayed in a toxic place for so long was that push and pull of part of me knew that a place like that needed a voice like mine Mm -hmm. right right so it's like where is my ethical duty to show up as an advocate and to make change and then where is my and where's the line between that and my duty to take care of myself and sustain myself in this work Mm -hmm. and I'm fortunate enough now like I guess this is where I can like instill a little bit of hope because I don't want to be like it's all doom and gloom in the public sector I'm fortunate enough now that you know I have a phenomenal team leader on the eating disorders team and she's allowed for me to bring in my voice and, mm. and do this work. And I, I made change within the system in by advocating and, you know, and getting some people on board with me where now we are the first program in all of BC to offer services for binge eating disorder, which is not because there's, you know, there's oppression within eating disorders yeah. treatment of yeah. only certain eating disorders are worthy of treatment because of yeah. that phobia and stigma. And, you know, we, so we're the first, we're the first and only program that treats and has a specific program like a group and I remember you know running the first group and having a room full of people say wow this is a space that I've needed and wanted for my entire life and it hasn't existed Mm -hmm. and every time I went to the system for help Mm -hmm. they gave me the wrong kind of help because they stigmatized me yeah yeah and like my colleague Nikki and I who work really closely on this project like we just sobbed together after we were like our my heart exploded where I was Mm -hmm. like yeah like I've been through some shit and it's been really discouraging to be a part of these systems and it's all worth it when you have a moment like that when you have a room full of clients saying like this was a service I've wanted and needed my whole life and no one heard or saw me yeah like that's So there is hope, like we can mm-hmm. make change. Totally. Yeah. What is care that's actually care and how do we bring more of that wherever mm-hmm. it is, right? There's no right way to creating change. And we can, this is a quote, I think I think it's Tara Danger. We, we need to see the cracks in the systems and mm. fill it with hope. 
Yeah. Uh, and so it's not necessarily whether or not you're part of the system. You're part of the system regardless. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Like it's where do you see the cracks and which cracks are yours to fill with hope? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. In my mind, before you even mentioned that quote, I was thinking about, okay, how there's like literally no space or gaps or cracks, even though there's tons of cracks in the system for us to practice this type of work. So I hope that we don't cancel ourselves along the way because Mm -hmm. of that. And this is really hard work because we don't know how to go about it. We have to envision and create it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And there's people who can make space for this too. So I'm so glad there's a supervisor like that with you. Yeah, I I love her. She's Mm. so great to, you know, and that's it, I think that and even just team culture, like that whole humor and fun piece, like we really prioritize that on our team. We've gotten complaints from other teams in the office that the eating disorders team laughs too much. <laughs> like, because Uh-oh. it's just that, like that sustaining. And yeah, I think, I think when you're saying, you know, filling the, the, the cracks in the system with hope, my mind goes to like, even just naming the cracks sometimes is enough for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like how powerful is it for me to be a part of an oppressive system? And when a client comes in, I just name it and own it and mm. name the harm or the inaccessibility. Like we have crappy government hours. We work 8.30 to 4.30, not accessible for the average working mm-hmm. person. Yeah. You know, we have certain requirements about attendance that have to be upheld because we have a wait list, like bureaucratic stuff. Like there's no way that we can just, and so sometimes like if you're a mom of three kids and you you miss some programming, like mm-hmm. now you're not gonna get services. And I just name that with clients. I'm like, listen, it really sucks. Yeah. It's, it's not accessible. Yeah. And, and I totally hear you and my hands are tied because I also, you know, I'll yeah. do the best that I can to work around the barriers or yeah, this, this program doesn't have a lot, a whole lot of people of color in it, or this program doesn't have a whole lot of men in it. Like, let's just name that. Mm-hmm. And people will be like, whew, you're naming it. Yeah. 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 It's not the elephant in the room that nobody's talking about anymore. At least we're acknowledging that reality exists. Yeah. Right? Like we're not going to ga- gaslight our clients no. by refusing to name what's happening here. Yeah. 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 I feel like this, this conversation has been a microcosm of all the things that, that you just spoke of, right? Like naming mm-hmm. all the spaces yeah. where, you know, mm-hmm. anti-oppression quote unquote mm-hmm. um, has cracks and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm not necessarily filling them with hope, but just even naming those things. But also I feel like our conversation has been really full and hopeful um, Mm -hmm. just to be in that connective space. And so for folks who want to find more of you, Mm -hmm. uh, where can they find you and how can they be connected with you? Yeah. So, I mean, I have, I have a podcast as well with my wonderful friend and co-host Gabby or Gabriel. So you can find us at therapy after hours and we are on Spotify and Apple podcasts or on Instagram. I think it's therapy. I don't even remember our Instagram handle. That's so bad. It is therapy.afterhours mm-hmm. on Instagram. And then I'm also on Instagram at Ravenolic counseling and my website is ravenolic.com. Perfect. Those are all my Yay. spaces. 
That's awesome. I will put all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. And I am so grateful that you're in this work and that mm. I get to share space with you. Yeah. Oh, so lovely meeting you. And yeah. I had such an amazing conversation. We'll definitely bring this into my week. Yeah. Thank you both so much. It was a pleasure meeting you, Linda, as well, and seeing mm -hmm. you again, Abby. I, I feel very nourished. You know, these conversations are the only way that I can describe them, and this is going to sound so cheesy, is when I have when I share these kinds of spaces with like-minded people and have this openness. Is like I leave with like my chest feels like it's glowing from the yeah. inside out, and I'm oh, gonna, yeah. I'm planning on having a fun and restful weekend, and so this has been a great kickoff to that to be able to to carry this into the coming days. So thank you so much. I have a lot of gratitude for both of you. I love that. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. So much gratitude. And uh, in Unlearning and Solidarity, as always, take so much care and we will talk to you soon.